Good morning. My name is Matthew. It's a joy to be bringing the Word of Christ to you this morning, a joy to sit underneath that Word and worship Christ along with you this morning. Please stay in your Bibles here in Mark chapter 9. That's where we will be. Over the last couple of weeks, thousands of athletes have descended upon the city of Tokyo to pursue one thing, a gold medal. In their various events, these athletes are pursuing this prestigious medal, the gold. It's a symbol of greatness. It's a symbol of actually being the greatest in your field. It's what they are all pursuing, representing themselves and representing their countries. I was struck this past week as I saw a British boxer who uh, had, had won silver, and he's standing on the podium, and as soon as he receives the silver, silver medal, he takes that medal and he stashes it in his pocket as he bawls his eyes out. And it wasn't because he was disrespecting any other athlete or, or disrespecting any other country, as in his own words, he did this because he thought he was a failure. He thought he was a failure because he had become second place. As has been said, second is the first loser. And he couldn't handle being second. He wanted to be the greatest. He wanted the gold medal. And unfortunately, this desire for greatness is not isolated to Olympic athletes. It's in fact the stuff of human hearts, of sinful hearts. The desire for greatness is in all of us. This desire for the spotlight, for significance, for eyes to be on us, for for us to shine, for influence. Right? We all have this desire deep inside of us. And as we've been learning in Mark, Jesus has been flipping the tables, flipping our understanding of, of life itself our expectations of who the Messiah is, what the Messiah is going to do, flipping expectations of what the disciples are supposed to be like and to do. And this morning, again, we are seeing Jesus flip the script on what greatness is all about. We're looking at greatness this morning. But it's not greatness defined by the world. It's greatness defined by God. That's the greatness that counts. Not greatness defined by a stopwatch next to a track or what some judge by next to a, a ring would decide, but greatness determined by our sovereign reigning God. That's where we're going this morning, and Jesus is informing us today that true greatness is defined by two things, two primary things, not only these things, but two in our text today, and that is service and holiness. Service and holiness, or if we were to put the two together, true greatness is defined by sinless service. Being a sinless servant is what God is after. So there's two points to this sermon this morning and give credit to Nate Aiken for helping me stay at a high level here. I could, when I started this text, I was all over the place, had lots of points, so you can thank him that this sermon is now simple. Simple outline, simple in its, in its uh, aim to true greatness defined by service and holiness. Let's pray this morning as we dive into this text, as we submit ourselves and ask for God to cultivate 
a desire for true greatness, maybe in ways that we've never seen it. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you that you are a God that graciously shares yourself to us and your word to us. Lord, we don't deserve to hear it this morning. We don't have a right to hear it this morning. We thank you that you are speaking. God, we ask for your spirit to open up our hearts that as these words travel into our ears, God, that our hearts would be able to receive it. To repent, be convicted of sin, but be compelled to Christ. To be compelled to worship your son, Jesus, that our lives would be transformed and your name would be exalted. God, we pray that the spotlight this morning would be on no, none of us, but the spotlight all focused on your son, Jesus. May we have eyes to behold him this morning as the great one. In your name we pray. Amen. So the first point, pursue greatness through humble service. Beginning in verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. We'll pause there. So Jesus is taking his disciples, heading back out on the road here, and he's going a, a roundabout way. He's avoiding the crowds because he's got something very serious and important to teach his disciples. This is in the middle of a, a discipleship discourse with his disciples that we're seeing here in Mark. And what Jesus is telling them is about his life story. The story of Christ, the reason why he came is to live this life. And he's going to die. And a new piece of information added here that he's going to be betrayed. He's going to be handed over, rejected. He's going to die. And he's going to rise from the dead. That's what he's trying to tell them. This is very important. This is the second of his uh, death and resurrection prediction, second of three. We saw one a couple weeks ago in chapter 8. We're going to see another one in chapter 10. So there's three here that Jesus is focusing on, but the disciples, it says, do not understand it. Right? We saw even last couple weeks ago that Jesus was saying these things plainly, clearly. But there's something in the disciples, in their hearts, that's causing them not to want to go there. It's clear but there's a fog, there's some sort of filter on their hearts that's preventing them from seeing and understanding the clear teaching of Jesus. And so they're afraid, and they're afraid to even ask questions. They don't even want to ask Jesus about this saying, this teaching. Why are they afraid? Well, maybe it's because, like we saw, they don't want to be rebuked. They don't want Jesus to say, get behind me, Satan, like what happened to Peter. Or maybe... It's because they don't want to go there. Enough cross-talk. We don't want to talk about suffering. We want to talk about glory. You're the king here. You're the, you're the son of man. You're the one that's been promised, the Messiah. We want to talk glory. We do not want to talk about sin. And I think that's probably where this thing is going. We see that actually uh, evidenced next in verse 33. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he, Jesus, asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. 
They're busted. They are busted here. This is an awkward, intense silence. right? The, they, it's just been revealed to them when Jesus asked that question. It's like, oh my. What we were just getting excited and arguing about, that maybe was not the best thing for us to be talking about. They're caught. Jesus knows what's going on. And it's ironic because Jesus was the whole time was trying to tell them about the most important person, the most important mission in the universe, himself coming to live, die, be raised from the dead, to save the world, to save sinners like them. Jesus just been trying to tell them this. And meanwhile, they're not having it because they are concerned about what? Who's the best? Who's the greatest? It's ironic. But it's an obvious teaching moment for Jesus. And so he calls them, verse 35, he sits them down to 12 and he says to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Last of all and servant of all. This is a teachable moment for them and this is a teachable moment for us. Because we are obsessed with our greatness. And obsessed with being great. Comparing ourselves with other people. And what does Jesus do? He, it's interesting. He doesn't actually kill the desire for greatness. He redefines it. He reorients it. He gives it a new perspective and a new trajectory. Okay, guys, you want to be concerned with being great? Well, let me tell you how to become great. Be last. Be last and be a servant of all. All people. This is how you are to measure greatness. Jesus is flipping the script. This is not, a, it's not measured by worldly standards. The world does not measure greatness this way. The world measures greatness by how many people look at you and how many people serve you and how, how many people are underneath you and all this type of stuff. And Jesus says, no. No. Greatness is about how many people you serve. How many people you're thinking about. How well you think about others. How well you serve others. That is greatness. Preferring other people, living a selfless life, putting others first. Not running after a gold medal, but running after a towel to wipe up people's sweat and to clean people's mess. That's what Jesus says defines greatness. And if that doesn't strike in our hearts, I don't know what does. I mean, that is brutal. That's not where I am. It's not where any of us us naturally land. We don't wake up here. You don't wake up, hit the alarm clock. I'm just ready to serve people today. I'm just ready to be last. I'm ready to not be seen. I'm ready to be in the shadows. I'm ready to serve I'm ready to not get any glory. I'm ready for for no spotlight to be shown on me. I don't want to be noticed. don't want to be seen. I just want other people to be seen. I just want to cause other people to do better. I want to cause other people to be great. Who wakes up like that? 
Jesus wakes up like that. Jesus does. And Jesus gives an object lesson. He pulls this kid aside. Verse 36. And he took a child and he put him in the midst of them and taking in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. In this culture, children had hardly any value. Maybe because of the death rate or because of other factors, children were basically non-entities. They were, they were nobodies. Insignificant. Waste of time, right? An intrusion. An obstacle. And what's, what Jesus is saying here is that if you're concerned about your status, about being great, well, children are the last people that you're going to give yourself to. No, if you, want to, if you want to extend, if you want to promote yourself and climb some ladder, you need to go somewhere else. Children are an interruption to that. But he says, no, I'm flipping all this. If you want to be great, you go serve the nobodies. You go serve the ones that culture casts aside, the marginalized, the insignificant and to step it up at night, she says, that's where I am. If you receive a child, you're receiving me. Because that's where I am. That's where I'm dwelling with the nobodies and the marginalized and the outcasts. And your work is not unnoticed. You go serve some nobodies, you're going to be a nobody doing that. And you might feel like, man, I'm in the shadows here. Nobody sees me. Jesus says, it's okay. That's okay because I see you. I see what you do when nobody else sees. I see the tears you're weeping over children and others. I see your ministry efforts. I see your service. You don't need to post something on social media. Make sure that somebody knows you're serving somebody else. That's ridiculous. You want that reward? He says, you'll have it. You're going to have the applause of man. Great. Man can say, great, you, you, you did something well. It's not that we intentionally hide our service, but Jesus is saying, when you are my disciple, and when you are pursuing greatness as I define it, you will be serving in the shadows. But don't lose heart because I see it. And when you serve the nobodies, you're receiving me. And when you receive me, you're receiving my Heavenly Father. Be, be okay being a nobody serving nobodies. That is greatness as Jesus defines it here. But being a humble servant also means that we celebrate the work of others. Verse 38, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So there is this guy that's doing ministry in the name of Jesus, and he's casting out demons. He's evidently successful. And what we saw last week, what could the disciples not do? They could not cast out this demon. 
And so I think what Mark is drawing our attention to is John is bent out of shape. That bends him out of shape because that threatens his status. That threatens his greatness. That threatens the the disciples, that close club that was with Jesus. It threatens their status. John would rather keep his status than have this other worker have success in his ministry then have Jesus exalted in that ministry, then have this other man actually delivered from demons. John would rather keep his greatness than to allow that to happen. So Jesus says, don't stop him. No, this is about me. This is about me, my kingdom. Now, wars against our pride because we so want success to be on our terms, in our hands, It's really hard to see other people succeeding, especially in veins of of desire where where we would have those desires, veins of ministry where we would maybe have those desires, where you would see God's work in other denominations or other people. It's hard to celebrate sometimes. It's evidence of pride. Because we're focused on our kingdom, not not the exaltation of Jesus. We're not just excited. We should be praising God that look what God's doing. Look what this guy's doing in the name of Jesus. How well do we celebrate others? It's a mark of humble service to our king. I'll never forget a, a uh, time that I was in, when I was in Savannah, I went to a Christian hip-hop artist concert, spoken word deal, and there was several different artists that were all take turns sharing the stage. And I'll never forget how when these artists would come off the stage, and others would be performing. And it wasn't a competition. But these are, you're all in this together. You all want your album sold. Right? You, you, you desire to be the best. Right? You desire to have your name out there and all that kind of stuff. And so I was imagining what you would expect is it would be hard for you to cheer on other people that are on there. But the most excited, pumped up people in the audience were their fellow competitors. Others that were also on stage. They were the ones that were most excited, pumping their fists and swirling their towels. They were so excited to see other people. Right? That line of poetry that just got spoken. It was the other artists that were most excited. And it just dumbfounded me. It's like, wow, what a picture of humility. That's what Jesus is after here. To celebrate. That Jesus is being exalted, no matter what. No matter what it is. God is calling us to humble service. Will we be servants? Will we be servants in our different spheres of influence? To our spouses? To our children? In our workplace? To our group of friends? To our church? Would we take this posture. What would our church look like if we took this posture seriously? Desiring to be last and servant of all. Jesus would be exalted. Talk about counterculture. Let's go there as we follow our master. Secondly, pursue greatness through killing sin. Verse 42. 
Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus begins this discussion talking about two things that make us very uncomfortable. Sin and hell. Jesus is very serious about the existence of both of these things. Sin, opposition towards God, and hell, a place reserved for those that oppose God. And he begins talking about these little ones, and he's either referencing this child that he's just brought, or little ones that uh, might reference young in the faith. He says, it's not enough for you to care about your own sin, you need to care about other people's sin. And if you cause someone else to sin, here's what would be better for you. To have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the sea. It'd be better for you to be at the bottom of the ocean than to cause someone else to sin. Very serious. And then he turns towards personal sin. And he says, cut off your hand, cut off your foot, gouge out your eye if they cause you to sin. Maybe this is referencing the things that we touch, do with our hands, the places we go with our feet, the things that we look at with our eyes. And it's like, whoa, Jesus, that's pretty, that's pretty dramatic, right? Cut off my hand. Wouldn't I be all mangled up and mutilated if I took that seriously? Jesus, as has been said, Jesus is not talking about amputation of the body. He's talking about mortification of sin in the heart. Jesus honors the body. But he's saying this is the dramatic nature, the serious nature by which we need to approach sin. We need to be killing sin. As John Owen said, if we are not killing sin, sin will be killing us. I was reminded of that this week, reading how a pastor used it here. If we are not diligent to be killing sin, it will be killing us. It does not take a break. It does not take a vacation. We must never let down our guard. But the Bible clearly teaches that sin comes from the heart here. So how are we supposed to take care of it? We are to repent. It's a matter of repentance. And we'll see in a second that it comes through God and his means through the gospel. But why is this so serious to Jesus? Why is sin so serious to Jesus? And he tells us here because Jesus believes in a very real Judgment. 
a real judgment. The Bible would further tell us all of us will stand before God and give account for our sin, for the things done in the body, for our thoughts and our deeds and our desires. We will be judged for that. And Jesus says, when we are judged, we as sinners are sent to a place called Gehenna or hell. It's the most horrific of all places of anything possible that our brains could imagine. If we, if we would try to imagine the worst possible reality, we could not come close to imagining this. It's that bad. Gehenna, this, this valley, it was a valley right outside Jerusalem that in the days of Ahaz uh, and, and afterwards they were sacrificing babies to the god of Molech. And during the time of Josiah, there was reform, and they started throwing all this uh, dumpster trash in this valley, and it, became, it ended up becoming a trash heap where the worm lived, and there was fire. They would burn it, and the fire would not stop burning in this valley. The trash just continued to dump in there, dump in there, and everybody knows about it. That's what Jesus is referencing, a very real place that has no end to it. Where the worm eats on the inside and the fire burns on the outside and yet you're never consumed. It's eternal. It doesn't stop. And these are horrific symbols. And I was struck this week as I read one commentator that said, symbols always point to a greater reality. A more intense reality. In other words, if you were there, if you were in hell, this place, you would want the worm. You would desire the worm. You would desire an unquenchable fire. It's horrific. And these are the words from our sweet Jesus. Our lamb-like Jesus. It's coming from His mouth. As one scholar said, the reason why it comes from his mouth is because if it comes from anybody else's mouth, we're not going to believe it. The word Gehenna is used 12 times in the New Testament. 11 of those come out of the mouth of Jesus. He speaks more about hell than he does about heaven. This is why Jesus is so concerned about sin. He does not want anyone to go there. He's on a mission to save people from going there. Nobody should go there. Period. God desires all men to be saved. The gospel message prevents people from going there. So Jesus laying out two alternatives. He's saying, listen, you want your sin? You want to be complete? You want your pride? You want to fulfill all your fleshly desire and have your whole earthly body? Or fleshly worldly body, I should say. If you do that, you're going to go there eternal suffering, or experience the mortification of your sin through the Spirit of God and the Gospel of God. And yeah, you might go without in this life. You might have to go give up some things. You're not going to have all this world. We're counting the world as loss, right? We're sacrificing ourselves to this world, crucified to this world. And he says, if you do that, though, you get eternal life. <laughs> 
You can have eternal life. Those are the alternatives here. But how do we do that? Oh, before I move to that, just one, one point. I think that Jesus is making here is this that sin is serious. And we should not make a pet out of sin, and we should not play with sin. It is on a mission to destroy us. And we cannot play with it. It is more powerful than we are. We cannot say, hey, tomorrow I'll deal with it. It is set on fire with the fires of hell, and it seeks to devour and destroy us. Satan is on it. Right? He comes as an angel of light. He's disguised. It's going to lie to us and deceive us. And hey, the bait looks great. It looks great. It feels great. Makes me feel great. Makes me think I'm great. All these things. And Jesus says, no. See through the lie. Don't play with it. Be drastic. Cut it off. Sever it at the root. Be done with it. Not part of it. All the way. The same way that you would cut a cancer out completely out of your body. You would say, hey, just take half of it out. Take it all out. But how? How do we take it all out? By the gospel. Praise God, by the gospel. We see that next. Verse 49. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This has been said to be one of the harder texts in the New Testament to understand. But I don't think it has to be that hard if we take it into context. Salt and fire. And I think Jesus is talking to the disciples here. Every one of you disciples are going to be salted with fire. Salt is a preserving agent. Fire is a purifying agent. And I think this goes back to the sacrifices in the Old Testament where the grain offerings would be salted. You would salt the offering as you would put it on the flames as an offering to God. And I think what Jesus is then saying to us is that salt and fire, as we see in the New Testament... The, the, the language is then interpreted as the gospel. Salt is the gospel, the glory of, of God, the grace of God, fire, the Holy Spirit. We, we see this preserving agent of salt and, and the church being salt in the world. And we see fire, the fire of the gospel and the Holy Spirit that comes into our hearts that cleanses us of all sin. So we, both of these things point to the gospel. So you have salt in yourselves. The way to deal with this pride, guys, the way to deal with you trying to be great, the, the, the way to deal with your sin that's constant is to have the gospel. And it's not in our strength that we amputate ourselves. We'll never get there. You know, flog yourself to death. And you will not get sin out of your heart. There is, only, there is only one thing that can get sin out of your heart. And that is the salt of the gospel. The word of truth. The word of grace. To be received by faith. 
don't work at it. We receive it. Disciples receive me. It's what he's been trying to what I've been trying to tell you on the road, but you have your ears closed. I'm living and I'm dying and I'm going to be raised from the dead for you. To cleanse you of your sin. To redeem you. To rescue you from the grip of the enemy. And so after we receive the sacrifice of Christ, that, the, that those sacrifices were pointing to, then, as Romans 12 would tell us, and even here, we become living sacrifices. Having received the salt of the gospel, we then turn around and face this world as servants that would give ourselves sacrificially. Living sacrifices unto God. And what does Jesus say? There's a connection here. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. It's a cause and effect. It's a result of. If you have the salt in yourselves, you will be at peace with one another. If you are living as a sacrifice, if you are living, having received the gospel, nothing humbles like the gospel, and you're not going to argue. You're not going to argue about who's the greatest. You will be at peace with each other. So then he draws it from the personal to the community. This is how the church operates. This is how the community of disciples operate. You are to be at peace because the salt of, of the gospel is at work. The fire of the gospel is at work purifying the community. And that that's what we are into the world. We are to be salt into this world. Humble service. And a holy Life, killing sin. This is the path of true greatness. This is what God calls us to. This is how he defines greatness. And that is out of our reach, is it not? If you're paying attention, thinking deeply on these things, all of us should say, I am not that. I am not great. I don't know what I am, but I am not great as you define it, Jesus. And that's okay, because there is one who is great, Jesus. He, he is the great one. I want to read from Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's where he was. Eternity passed. What did he do? Verse 7. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is the great one. Let there be no mistake about it this morning. 
We will never be like Jesus. There has never been one like Jesus. There never will be someone like Jesus. He's calling us to reach towards himself. And he's giving us his nature. He is the one who became last. God became last. God, the ruler of the universe, became the servant of all. That's breathtaking. Make it personal too right now. God in heaven took on flesh in the person of Jesus to serve you. To serve you. In your sin, in your rebellion, in your wickedness. He came to serve you. He died in your place. That was the type of service he rendered. He tasted hell. He went here so that you don't have to. This morning, right now, if you're on your way to hell because you've never repented of your sin and placed your faith in the Lord Jesus and his sacrifice, now is the time. Confess that he's Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. That worm and that fire does not have to be yours. Don't go there. Come be with the Father. Come be with the church. Come be with the saints in glory forever and ever and ever in the new heavens and the new earth. That's why Jesus came. That's why he's the greatest. That's why we're not. And we're glad worshipers of him. Gladly we worship this one, Jesus. Church, we exist for his name. May we be humble servants of this king. May we give our lives as living sacrifices. Humbly serving, doing anything and everything we can to exalt his name. Make him look great on this earth. And doing all we can to renounce and repent of our sin. To live holy. To be the salt on this earth. That he may receive glory and honor and thanks both here in Cary and among the nations. Let's pray. Father, we humbly worship you now in response God, you did not just speak a word to save us. You sent your son to save us. The incarnate word. We have no right. To hear a message of salvation. We have no right for God to visit. Us. But you have. Because of your great mercy. And your great grace. And your love. Your loving kindness. While we were still sinners. Christ died for us. 
God, we, we worship you. Thank you. We have nothing but gratitude for the gospel. God, may you cause it to penetrate deeply within our hearts that we may live as glad, glad, glad servants. So happy to be last. So happy to serve. If only you make it glory. God, may you do great things with us. For your name is great. And we desire your name to be exalted. It's in your name we pray. Amen.